We've tended over the last couple of years to um, track the last week of Christ's life or track a... Uh, oh, you're still going, you're still going. Uh, we've covered things like his last miracle, uh, Christ's uh, last sermon. Uh, we, we've covered things like his trial and things like that. None of that this year. Very much uh, we're going to be focusing on his last words. Uh, in fact, the seven statements that he made on the cross. And so you'd imagine that if you were dying, uh, if you knew that you were dying, you'd want to make sure that those last final sentences before you passed away would be crammed full with as much meaning, with as much sentiment, and as much profundity as possible. You'd want to make your last words count. You'd want to speak in a way that made a lasting impression. And so we're going to spend a bit of our time this morning just setting the scene. And so let's read the scripture and let it do the work for us in painting the picture. And then we'll explore why Jesus said the things that he said whenever he knew that he was dying. We need to be careful here, though. In this entire series, we need to be careful. It's something that we go over and over and over and over again regularly. Uh, Even as we grow up through church, uh, so much of this is the kind of standard answer to any uh, quiz or or questions that are being asked at Sunday school or campaigners. And the answer is always, well, Jesus died for our sins because, you you know, the kids kind of realize, well, you can't mark me wrong for saying that. And so they just say it all the time. But that means then, though, that because we say it so often, we get casual about it. And yet what we're about to read forms the most astoundingly simple and yet most profound, confusing truth. Romans 5 summarizes the whole thing like this. It says, but God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's just incredible. God loves us so much that he thinks you're to die for. But this is more than thought. It's more than words. It's reality. We are the undeserving recipients of God's love. And the truth behind that incredible thought is that no matter how you shape it up, all right, we do not deserve to be saved. No matter how you think about yourself, we don't deserve it, which should humble anyone who thinks that you are good enough. It should humble anyone who thinks that they make the grade because what you're saying is that Jesus didn't have to die for you, that all of this is unnecessary. But it should also offer hope to anyone who thinks that they are, their life is too bad to be turned around. The gospel says it's impossible to go beyond the scope of salvation because the scope, even at its most narrowest, even at its beginning point says, we all start by being undeserving of undeserved love and undeserved forgiveness. And so bear that in mind as we, as we read these um, couple of phrases, uh, verses. Luke 23, starting at verse 33, hopefully. Can I get that moved on? And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots and divided his garments, and the people stood by, watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
And there's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged reeled at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus calling out, with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they did perfect it. Their goal was to turn it into a terrifying spectacle. The idea was to put a criminal on display for all to see, as if to say to the world, this is what you get when you mess with us. You want to try taking us on? This is what happens to people like you. This is what happens when you mess with the might of Rome. Which means that in all likelihood, this is um, Gordon's Calvary. This is where um, it is suggested that uh, the crucifixion took place. Um, you notice there's a, <laughs> there's a bus station down there, and there's a Muslim uh, uh, graveyard up at the top now. But ultimately, it's the place of the skull. They, they reckon now, it doesn't really work um, sort of from where I was. This was a photo I took. But there's eyes, there's a nose, uh, and there's like a jawline with, with teeth. Um, the idea is from the right angle, it, it looks very much like, like a skull. But the reality is that Jesus probably wasn't crucified at the top of this hill. In all likelihood, he was buried. Uh, he was buried. He was crucified at the bottom of the hill, at the foot of the hill. Um, because he, the Romans would have put them on display as people walked in and out of the city. Uh, and, and so that was the likelihood of what happened. If you go to this place, you'll find, yeah, the bus depot at the bottom, the graveyard at the top, it makes it a very surreal place to go with all the tourists coming and going. Um, it's not as solemn as perhaps what you'd think. Um, but the reason they put the graveyard at the top was they think this is hilarious because prophecy says that when Jesus comes back, he'll come back to this place. But the Arabs think that he'll not be able to touch down, as it were, because the graveyard will make it unclean. So they think this is ah, he can come back now because the, yeah, they, they haven't really thought it probably through. But I want to just give you a picture of how he was crucified. Jesus and Simon of Cyrene, they would have carried the crossbeam. And at the bottom of the hill of this place called the Skull, um, there would have been posts already stationed where they'd have crucified people maybe the day before, the week before. And they'd have carried the crossbeam and then they would have put them onto it there. Now sometimes, very often, they weren't nailed to the tree at all. Uh, sometimes victims were simply tied to the posts and kept in place that way. That, in one sense, was worse because it was a sadistic attempt to prolong your suffering. They wanted to drag it out a lot longer. Now, people have tried to recreate the various forms that we know historically did happen using rope. Most tests are stopped after half an hour because of the intense pain that people are put through. Um, their chests and their forearms are, are just being pulled and pulled. 
and um, they, they have trouble breathing. And so people tap out after about 30 minutes because it feels like um, their shoulders being ripped out of their sockets. Some crucifixions on record lasted for over a week. Death normally came by way of exposure to the Middle Eastern sun. Dehydration, starvation, fatigue if you hadn't already died by asphyxiation. Fighting for each breath, you had to lift yourself up. So people on the cross, they were constantly writhing and wriggling and moving. It was exhausting. Jesus, however, wasn't tied by rope. He was placed there by nails, which meant he died in hours, not days, through the pain, though the pain was far more intense. Now, the theory is, if you go from the bottom of your palm to the back of your wrist, that was the angle at the nails going through. So it wasn't just sort of straight through. It was from the bottom of your palm to the back of your wrist. So it was at an angle. Now, you imagine that angle and then having to lift yourself up to breathe with your arms. That's, it gives you an idea of the pain. Um, and it was just to maximize pain. Everything was designed to maximize pain. Now, I'm not trying to disgust anyone or make anyone's stomach school. I simply want you to be able to get this picture in your head of what it was really like. Forget the nice wee um, pictures that you got in Sunday school. Forget the wee pictures of three-week crosses with a sunset or that you maybe get on Easter cards. I want you to get a picture of soldiers laughing at their sadistic craftsmanship and high-fiving each other at how proud they were of their work that day. I want you to get a picture of people laughing and cheering as someone is writhing in pain, watching on. I want you to imagine all the people and no one wanting to help. Imagine all that pain and everyone just watching as you would hang there, naked, exposed, between men who are as guilty as sin and you've done nothing wrong except forgive sin. In Mark 15, we read a wee bit about what it was like. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, then save yourself and come down from the cross. They're taking the hand. They think they're being funny. And also the chief priests and the scribes mocked them to one another, saying, oh, he saved others. Can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. They're, they're taunting him. Oh, listen, if you just come down, we'll all believe. You come on down, we'll bow right now. Prove to everyone right now that you are who you say you are. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Everyone had done their worst. The one who had healed the sick, they're sick. Their family, the one who had been welcomed in Jerusalem just days before with the procession of hosannas and palm trees. The one who had taught with power that no one else had ever seen before. The one who had raised the dead was now dying. In John 1, at the start of the gospel, we read that he came onto his own and his own received him not. They simply didn't want to know. They had been so happy to take the gifts that he was giving out. Oh yeah, healing, we'll take that. 
feeding 5,000? Yeah, I'll go for a free meal. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be part of, of, of all the good stuff that's going on, but when it came to Christ himself, no, I'm okay, thanks. And that's maybe a parallel. Christmas time, we see that there was no room for him at the end. And at Easter, we see that there was no room for him in their hearts. And yet with this picture of him hanging there, what would have been his last words then? How would you have spoken to these people? How would you have spoken to these people who were laughing at your face, who were spitting at you, who were taunting you? What would you say to those who just stood and watched and did nothing? He prays, which in itself maybe would be amazing to us. And then he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and so the first word of our seven in this series is the word forgiveness now let me give you something practical here right right at the start imagine if you were the one who was wronged here imagine being taunted maybe school bullies or something got there or imagine uh, there was a messy breakup or, or um divorce or, or something that's been going on uh, and there's cruelty uh, and there's apathy of others who will just stand back and watch and they don't seem to care they or, or seem to be enjoying your suffering and there's this kind of circle of wolves around you uh, and they almost enjoy the fact that you get knocked down a peg or two and they seem to be delighting in it how do you respond to them in the moment of your most hurt in the moment of your deepest shame and in the moment of your lowest point in the moment of that, Father, forgive them. They don't really understand what they're doing. Because you might be tempted to say, they know rightly what they're doing. Maybe it would be easy to tell others to forgive, to let it go. Maybe it's easier after the hurt has eased to come to terms to forgive that after the shame is diffused, you can go and speak without anger or without bursting into tears. And yet here's our Savior, innocent yet crucified, isn't thinking about revenge or trying to prove a point or isn't angry or screaming in pain or thinking about himself. He's thinking about the people around him. And I've said it before from the front here, we're, we're like sponges. We're like sponges in that we kind of absorb everything that's going around, the company that we keep, the um, stuff we watch on TV or on the computer screen. We we just absorb all these kinds of things, uh, and we begin to reflect it. But when the squeeze comes on, if you squeeze a sponge, what's really inside the sponge will come out. And likewise for us, when the squeeze is on, what's really inside will come to the surface and will be exposed. Here Christ is having the very life squeezed out of him. And his first thought, his first words on the cross is to pray for those who call him their enemy. So how do you respond to your enemies? How do you respond in the heat of the moment? How do you respond whenever that squeeze is at its tightest? What about other people when you're under pressure? How, how does that reflect to your spouse you know, your kids? your co-workers or your employees, when the squeeze is on, do we get wrapped up in ourselves or do we still retain the ability to think of others above ourselves? There's another prophecy that Jesus fulfills here on the cross. Isaiah 53, that wonderful, wonderful chapter, the last verse tells us that he poured out his soul to death 
was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was one of them, and he prayed for them. This is huge. We're not talking about a God who is distant and unattached and not connected with the events here. God is not watching from a distance. Rather, he is here. He's in the moment, in the agony of death, and he is numbered as one of them. He is counted among the transgressors. He's counted as a sinner. He's classed with these criminals. And what's happening here is Christ is stepping aside from his authority as God on earth and is assuming the sole position of man's representative to heaven. This is huge. He's now representing us. He's not God to us, but he's man to God. All of us, each one of us are numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bears the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Forgive them, not because we're innocent, but forgive them because we're guilty. Even though we can't grasp the scale of what we're doing, yeah, I know. But forgive them, because forgiveness is now possible. They can be forgiven now. There is a way for them to be forgiven. He's thinking of others when he died, because he would represent others by his death. This was the plan. In fact, when you get into Revelation, where Revelation starts to show you who Jesus is, he's sitting at the next. He's sitting next to God at the throne, and the angels kind of are triumphing and announcing and proclaiming who he is. And he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world." This was always the plan, folks. Things didn't get spiraled out of control before Christ came to the cross. He says, right, we'll try and throw this idea together. Or even when Adam and Eve fell into sin right at the beginning in Genesis, God didn't go, oh, I'm going to have to come up with a plan now. But rather, before even the earth was formed or, or given thought to, there was the cross. It was always coming. It was always the plan. And First Peter would talk back about uh, all the Old Testament prophets and say it was always coming. It was always coming this way. Everything right from creation was pointing to the cross. And over and over and over again, he points back and points back. The book of Leviticus and the sacrificial system to Isaiah talking about this, suf- this suffering servant being made meek and lowly. Psalm 22, it's no coincidence that in John 5, Jesus says, look, you studied the scriptures, but in vain because you think that in them you might have life, but you refuse to come to me. He's saying, look, you've read Isaiah, you've read all these guys that Messiah was going to be meek and that he was going to heal the lame and give sight to the blind. You read all of this and I'm doing it and you still don't want to admit that I'm the Messiah. In fact, even on the cross, I'm almost cover this one in a week or two's time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people will say that was God turning his back on his son. I don't see that in the Bible. What I do see is Psalm 22 that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read the rest of the Psalms, it talks about his hands being pierced, his feet being pierced, his garments being gambled over from moth. So there's a picture developing in the Old Testament about what it's going to be like for Jesus. And here he is on the cross and saying, see, it was always going to be this way. This was always the plan. In fact, Paul sums it up amazingly. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
the old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, so that in him who was made to be sin, in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus is able to say, Father, forgive them. The price is being paid. I'm doing what we set out to do, to lay down my life as a ransom for many. The great exchange is taking place my sinlessness for their sin, my righteousness for their unrighteousness, my blood for their death. Numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Which makes it all very, the next bit a a lot more clear because we say, well, who are they? Forgive them. Who are the them that's referred to here? Well, just before we get that, it's interesting that this is the only time that Christ asks God to forgive someone. In all Scripture, this is the only time that Jesus asks God to forgive anyone because any other time he forgives them himself. Remember the um, paralyzed man come down and through the roof in, uh, in a couple of the Gospels, but Matthew 9 is one of them. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone blows up and goes, oh, you can't say that, you can't say that. He says, well, it's easier saying to a lame man, get up and walk. Or what about the prostitute who came in and wiped his feet at Simon's house with her tears in Luke 7? My dear, your sins are forgiven. The woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, your sins are forgiven. I don't condemn you. And on the cross, Christ put aside that divine prerogative so he could be numbered with the transgressors. He could no longer forgive him because he was becoming sin for us. So who are they? Who's he praying for? Pilate? talking about a man who had no reason to charge him, yet he bowed to public pressure. Perhaps Jesus was forgiven his weak character. Or what about the Pharisees? They had been plotting his death from Matthew 12, right through. I mean, I guess if Jesus came to a lot of churches today, maybe even our own, maybe some church people would oppose him. They wouldn't really like his radical thinking. They wouldn't like how he pushes away from comfort and towards sacrifice. Maybe some people would plot against him as well. His, the real Jesus is very threatening to people who want to hold on to power. Maybe it was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who Jesus was forgiving. What about the soldiers? They were the ones who did the deed, as it were, following orders. It was only after the fact that the centurion was able to say, oh, surely this man was the son of God. Maybe it was the soldier who was forgiven, or perhaps it was you and I. If the plan had been from the beginning to find a a way whereby the holiness and the justice of God could be magnified and also the love and grace and mercy of God expressed, if all roads were going to go to the cross so that our sin could be dealt with without us being destroyed and without God's character being contradicted, then the cross is more than about Pilate and soldiers and Pharisees and a crowd that stood back and did nothing. 
This is part of an eternal plan. This is salvation's plan. In Mark 10, uh, 45, we read that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was the plan. Christ would die so that we could find forgiveness for our sins. When my Sophie was probably about Bethany's age, about three, um, the four of us went up to one of those animal farms. Uh, I think it was maybe the one in Dundonald, Home Mount, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, we were working away systematically through all the zones, you know, kind of, you know, right, okay, the bunnies are doing this, and we'll go see the cows, and then we'll go see the puppy dogs, and we'll go see chickens, and we'll work. That's the only thing I really bring to our family is that kind of structured of, right, no, we have to do it this way. We have to go around it, and otherwise it'd just be carnage. It'd be a free-for-all. And we'd just been around the farm, and uh, we were getting ready to leave, and we're heading back down towards the exit, and we looked around, and I had Bethany's hand, and I uh, said, so Where's Sophie? And, Ruth, do you have Sophie? No, you have her. I don't have her. Now, Sophie thinks she's funnier than what she is. All right, she gets that from her mum. And (laughs) so chances are she was hiding in a bin somewhere, uh, just laughing at us, you know, or just, you know, this is sort of the sense of humor that you get in our family, you know, just quite dark. But, we checked all the bins. No, she's not there. So, right, we split up. And, and Ruth and, and Bethany, they headed down around sort of the play area and down some of the trails. I headed back up towards the goats and the sheep and pigs and all the rest of it. And it was all fine while there were still places to search. But as we started to tick off all the boxes, it says, well, I've tried there, I've tried there. She's not in the bathroom. She's not here. She's not in the shop. She's not. Uh-oh. Now, it was a good 10 minutes later, longest 10 minutes ever. There's this woman coming in from the car park holding Sophie's hand. Now, parents, perhaps mothers in particular, will be able to follow me here. There's that really weird moment where you've got 10 minutes of panic, where you love your kids so much, and you're so glad that they're back, and you're so glad that they're safe, and you just want to hug them, and you just never want to let them go ever again, but at the same time, you want to beat the mess out of them. Because <laughs> what are you doing to me? <laughs> you know? Scary 10 minutes. And so there's this kind of weird mixture of, of love and, and needing to lash out. And here's something that those 10 minutes taught me, though. I don't have anything more valuable to me than her her sister or, or Ruth. If someone took her and said, look, to get her back, it's going to cost you everything that you have, okay, absolutely, no brainer, you can have it. Have everything. <laughs> it's no brainer to me. I will gladly give you everything, you know, if you really want my nine-year-old focus with 135,000 miles on it that I was driving at the time, you can have it. I'll probably get to church quicker without it. And I think it's one of those things where I'm saying that I think I would do this but I, I give my life for. It says, you know, right, well, look, if someone has to suffer, someone has to die, in my family, right, well, I'm, I'm volunteering me. Because it's far easier for me. It's far more comfortable to me. It sits with me so much easier that if I'm having to suffer rather than one of the girls or, or Ruth. 
And I think that's the weight that's being communicated on the cross. God said, look, listen, if it's, got, if it's a choice between these people who I created and who I love and me, then I choose me. I'll take the place. And I love them. I have to punish them sometimes, but I love them. That's, that's the range of emotion, the range of sorrow, the range of, of ransom that's on display here that you and I held by our sin cost the life of the Son of God. We are the they referred to here. Uh, another thing, I uh, know our time's moving on, but just because forgiveness is available, because Christ prayed for us, doesn't mean that everyone is now forgiven. Okay? It doesn't work like that. Nothing is happening automatically here. We must choose to receive that forgiveness. We must ask it. We must seek it, desire it, want it. And even then, listen, folks, you need to understand, God does not have to forgive you. You understand this, right? Just because you say, Lord, forgive me, he's under no obligation to actually forgive you. He doesn't have to forgive you nothing. You do not have a right to be forgiven. You do not have a right to grace, a right to mercy. That, that def defeats the very definition of grace and mercy. And yet God seeks to forgive because that is who he is. Likewise, ignorance is not an excuse here. Notice Jesus clearly says they don't get what they're doing to me. Yet he still calls for them to be forgiven. Guilt, whether they understand it to be guilt or not, doesn't excuse them being guilty. Even if they didn't fully get the severity of actions, like Sophie ran off into the car park. She didn't get why we were so cross or, or so worried. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that she was wrong in doing what she did. The soldiers and Pilate, the laughing crowd, they had seen Jesus' miracles. They had heard them, the truth spoken by the Son of God himself, and yet they still sought his death. There was plenty of enough rope to hang them with justice. Yes, they knew it was a dirty business. Their hearts were corrupt, but what was lacking was the full understanding. And, and Paul recognizes this in Corinthians and Timothy. He says, look, if they understood what was happening, they wouldn't have done it. And Timothy says, I'm in the same boat. He says, I was a blasphemer, a prosecutor, a violent man. I'm showing mercy. Because I was ignorant. I didn't fully grasp how serious my sin was. I had no idea just what I was doing. In other words, Jesus and God himself understands that even though so many of us, we still can't grasp how serious our sin is, how serious that issue of sin is in our lives. Maybe we laugh it off as a little personality quirk. Oh, that's just what I am. You know, I just say what I think, even if it hurts people sometimes. I just say what pops into my head because I just like being honest with people. Or we look to blame other people because we've got a bad attitude. We blame other people because we're scarred. We use that as justification to do what we want or to have our hang-ups. Each of us has enough sin to condemn us. But God is looking deeper and he's made a way that we do not deserve because he knows that if we really knew the truth, we would embrace his son. John 3, John 12 both says that Jesus came not to condemn the world but to save the world from condemnation. And the prayer on the cross tells me that God found a way to forgive. In agony on the cross, Christ found the strength to pray, Father, forgive them, <laughs> for they don't know what they're doing. 
the first word of the seven spoken by Christ is the word forgiveness. I wonder, have you known what it's like to feel totally forgiven? That God would love you so much that he would take your place on the cross to suffer and to die so you could be free, so you'd not have to suffer the penalty of sin. He's numbered among the transgressors so that I wouldn't have to be. He pleaded for the transgressor so that I could go free. Folks, if you understand the full weight of your sin, your thoughts about the cross would be far different from maybe what they are right now. Are you going to continue to ignore what God has done? Or will you accept the forgiveness that he died to make available to you? So, look, let's be very clear just before we finish. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with him. He did not die so that you could be rich. He didn't die so that you could be healthy. Jesus dies so we get Jesus. That's it. Okay, so, so being forgiven from sin, it doesn't mean that everything's going to fall into place for you. It doesn't mean that life's going to be easy because that, you know, no matter what happens, rather, no matter what happens, he's sufficient and he's going to be with you through it all. That's the difference. Because he was able to bear our sin, because he was able to rise again from the dead, death is defeated so I know he can handle anything that's going on. I look to him, I trust in him. I hope in him because I have him. And that's enough. That's the gospel. Not that everything's going to be okay. That circumstances will just melt away and things will be wonderful. And it's maddening to me that so many preachers and so many Christians will promise people all sorts that if you get, you know, that you'll get healed, that you'll prosper, but it ignores so much of Scripture and pretty much all of church history. You look at the, the apostles. They died bad. All right? They get beheaded. They get crucified upside down. They get boiled in oil. And they didn't have money to, to their name. Not a penny. And they were slaughtered. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, the prince of preachers, fought depression most of his life and dies with depression. Christianity has been carried through the generations by the blood of men, not the money of men. No, Christ is the great prize of our faith. Not the stuff that he gets us. Jesus is enough. His forgiveness is enough. We'll pursue healing, but if we don't get it, he's still going to be enough. We pursue love or children or employment. If we get it, great. But if not, he is still enough. He is still sufficient. And the great reward of trusting in Christ is knowing Christ. The great prize in being forgiven is that we have forgiveness that we didn't deserve. The gospel is all about the sufficiency of Christ. And I think about the disciples, you know, they go on in Acts and they get arrested and they get beaten uh, to within an inch of life. There was one time they were arrested uh, and the court tells them, look, if you keep preaching this gospel, if you keep talking about Jesus like this, we're going to arrest you and we're going to beat you to death. So what happens? They say, look, you do what you've got to do. But as for us, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And they leave beaten 
they leave with bones broken. They leave <laughs> malnourished and, and with chains still marked to their skin. And they leave rejoicing. Was it because their lives were so comfortable because they knew Jesus? No. It's because Christ is sufficient. Knowing him, having a relationship with him transcends circumstances. It's not about what you get out of it. It's about getting him full stop. He is preeminent. He is first. There's nothing else to chase. There's nothing else to pursue. Because when we have him, there's this deep realization that he is all we've ever needed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have made available to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you made a way where there was no way before. That he would become sin for us. He who knew no sin. That we might become righteous. Father, we cannot begin to understand it. We can't begin to understand this great exchange. But Lord, I pray that each one of us here this morning would embrace it and cherish it. Not for any promises that life might be easy afterwards. But Lord, with the promise that we would have that forgiveness that we so desperately need and that we would have a relationship with the one who would love us enough to die for us in the first place. So Lord, I pray that it would be real to us this morning the length and breadth and depth and height of the love of God. And we ask this in your precious and holy and worthy and beautiful name. Amen. We're going to sing another song now and then we're going to go into our time of communion.